welcome to another episode of Ipsa Dixit. My name is Jess Myers, and I'm here with my guest, Cameron Cantrell, today. Cameron is a 1L at the University of Washington School of Law. Before law school, she worked at a data security firm. She was a Google Fellow in D.C. this past summer, where she worked on FOIA and police technology issues. Her field of interest is criminal law with a focus in electronically stored evidence. Today, we'll be discussing a hot topic area in the intersection of criminal law and technology policy potentially invasive warrants for computer searches, and the police technologies widely available for decrypting mobile devices, like full device imaging for smartphones. Welcome, Cameron. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, so I kind of like to kick off um, with law students, just figure out, you know, um, what their career interests are and kind of what got you started in this field. So I wanted to ask first, what was your undergraduate degree? My undergraduate degree, um, the name was Society Technology Studies, um, which was a very uh, flexible major. I made it focused on the relationship between government infrastructure and technology use innovation. I also minored in math. I'm in an area known as network optimization, which the best known problem is probably the traveling salesman problem. Can you get into that a little bit? The math part or the government part? The traveling salesman problem. Yeah, sure. Um, So I love math. Math has always been my favorite subject. And I actually chose my undergraduate school, Worcester Polytechnic, um, because there was a robust math program that I could also study government at the same time. And so discrete network optimization is a lot about system efficiency, network flows, which sound like buzzwords, but they're really useful when you're thinking about supply chains, um, when you're thinking about where, let's see, where data is concentrated. We use discrete network optimization problems to do foreground background sorting in uh, video cameras and video footage. So there's a lot of little tiny applications. There's much more conceptual ones like traveling salesmen, How do we get from point A to point B in the most efficient manner and hit all these stops along the way? A lot of uh, math problems that are unsolved, which I like because then I don't have to come up with the answer for homework. Um, And they're a lot more conceptual. So it's more of a rationale of why it should work than this does work for this reason. Interesting. So you you probably get this a lot. why law school? How did you how did you make that jump from passionate about math to kind of a, a humanities practice? Yeah, I actually decided that I wanted to go to law school in like 10th grade, I think, maybe 11th grade, um, because we did a mock trial after um, the AP test in AP U.S. history. And I just thought it was the coolest thing ever, getting to research the cases on both sides and then make a persuasive argument for it. Um, I had a leaning towards math and being a mathematician in whatever sense of that um, I would I would get to. But when I was younger, I did experience a situation in which I needed good advocacy and I didn't get it. And so the opportunity to argue for money, um, which was how I viewed being a lawyer back in like 10th, 11th grade, um, and also being an advocate was just so appealing to me that um, I had to try it out. 
That is super interesting. That's cool. So where do you see math now coming up in your legal education and I guess in your career in the future? Well, there's a lot of math um, that's very based in just logic, if A then B, which definitely helped on the LSAT um, and definitely helps in, I mean, a lot of different areas of legal work and statutory interpretation of when things apply and when they don't. Um, and those logical equivalencies are really interesting in a policy sense as well, which um, I see myself going towards. I am really interested in litigation. Um, I loved my civil procedure class, which I understand is not that common. Uh, I'm also really, really drawn to not so much uh, legislature and um, political work, but the actual rationales of why technology drives our policies to certain areas and how we can sort of pull them back. You're kind of an anomaly when it comes to law students. You love math and you love CivPro. I know. I get that quite a bit. Um, My friends definitely tease me for it. Makes sense, though. I mean, CivPro is very logical. Math is logical. How did you feel about contracts? Didn't love it Um, as much as as the next guy. I (laughs) said it was mostly clean cut with the UCC, but I'm not very big on humanity for the sake of um, economic efficiency or whatever the legislator purports it to be. Um, So that was a little tricky, I'd say. Interesting. Well, okay, so we have you here today to discuss a topic that honestly, I'm not super, I'm not super experienced with. So I'm excited to talk to you. You're an expert on um, this whole idea of invasive warrants for computer searches. Um, And I'm interested as well to kind of talk about more about what technologies are already available for um, law enforcement to be decrypting our mobile devices. So you sent me a few articles over Twitter I had a chance to read. I was hoping you could kind of set the uh, framework for our listeners as well. Let's start with the topic of these invasive warrants um, for computer searches. Do you mind laying the groundwork for the kind of two sides on this debate and maybe talking a bit about where the Fourth Amendment comes in? Yeah, absolutely. So digital devices like computers and smartphones are incredibly dense concentrations of privacy and autonomy. They have, as we all know, know, our bank statements, maybe our photos of our loved ones, of ourselves, our social media apps, which contain untold amounts of information just there. Um, And law enforcement is very interested in reaching this information. There are generally two types of information that are super relevant when we're talking about law enforcement and devices. So we have cell site location information, which tells us where the device was at what times by what it pinged to connect to the internet or connect to the cell towers. Then we have digital information, which is actual data, metadata. So where were you when that picture was t- taken? Uh, what did that text say that you sent to your mom yesterday? Things like that. So at this point in time, uh, courts agree that law enforcement may not, without a warrant, search digital information on a cell phone or a computer seized from an arrestee. 
This is, in my opinion, an excellent rule, um, but it presents the same problems as warrant applications and executions for other types of information. So focusing largely on digital information, which is the content of the text, the location of certain information within the device, there are very clear analogs to, say, a file cabinet. We have the text, say, um, are parallel to a piece of paper in the file cabinet. The geolocation, maybe, is uh, where that file uh, was written, where that piece of paper was authored. And when we have a Fourth Amendment search with its needs for probable cause, with its requirement of particularity and being a narrow search furthering the law enforcement's reason for getting that warrant um, to the ends of justice, ideally, um, it becomes really tricky because we don't analogs anymore. So, so at this point in time, courts agree that law enforcement may not, without a warrant, search digital information on a cell phone or computer seized from an arrestee. This is generally, in my opinion, an excellent rule, but it presents the same Fourth Amendment problems as warrant applications and executions for other types of information. So we have the analog or we have the parallel of different types of information being found on a phone versus being found in someone's home, which is the traditional Fourth Amendment search and seizure. But we don't have perfect analogs when it gets to certain types of information. We wouldn't expect a person to keep their photo albums of their loved ones, maybe photos they took even just the day before, right next to their bank information, right next to their all their contact information for their social friends and family. Um, but on the phone, we do have that. So there's this issue of when we go searching a phone, maybe we think that there's texts that are communications between the phone's owner and a potential accomplice, accomplice in the alleged crime. Um, how do we get to just those texts without also getting the chance to look at your pictures or your bank information? How do we sort of have this oversight that's usually available through the plain view doctrine for analog searches in digital searches. The issue is that the very nature of a digital search kind of eviscerates the plain view doctrine. And there's a lot of literature on that that can say it a lot better than I can. But assuming now for sake of time that there's just not much plain view doctrine protections in the digital searches, um, Magistrate judges have kind of taken digital search warrants into their own hands. So maybe the biggest controversy in how magistrates do this in computer search jurisprudence is what Professor Oren Kerr has named the magistrate's revolution. These revolutionary magistrates place ex-ante restrictions on how computers can be searched to the end of keeping the search particular and narrow to the needs stated on the warrant applications. Or maybe they might ask the applicant to set their own ex-ante restrictions and then approve the warrant once the applicant's suggestions seem narrow enough. I personally love ex-ante restrictions because I see them as far better than the other option, which is post-fact review for reasonableness. So normally when we have a Fourth Amendment search, we'll go in in an analog setting, search a home, uh, pursuant to the warrant, and then bring the fruits of that search back to the judge. And the judge judge says, 
this part of what you obtained in the search was reasonable. This part was not. You shouldn't have been able to reach this through the warrant that I approved. You won't be able to use that in the prosecution that you're seeking here. So while we have the plain view doctrine usually contain what is reviewed post fact in an analog search and that's eviscerated in digital searches, we find that digital searches are much more abused from a Fourth Amendment perspective than their analogs. So about a decade ago, the Ninth Circuit tried to require computer searches be executed by neutral third parties. These so-called filter teams are incentivized to abuse the plain view doctrine as law enforcement might be. This was their general appeal, and it was pretty popular from a policy perspective. But from the legal perspective, uh, then Solicitor General Elena Kagan uh, wouldn't have it. Um, said it was much too overbroad, much too restrictive, um, and that opinion requiring filter teams was shifted to a concurrence. Other than this, there have been very few challenges to the legitimacy of ex-ante restrictions. Um, there's a law review article by Professor Paul Ohm in the Virginia Law Review that explains most cases appearing to challenge ex-ante restrictions are in fact distinguishable on other grounds. So while we see historically ex-ante restrictions are really disfavored, the strong policy reasons and the lack of cases that actually decide on relevant facts um, really favor the other way. And there just haven't been any litigators that wanted to take that battle uphill. Now, um, of course there are cons to ex-ante restrictions and there's really just one big one. Um, which is criminal digital information is much easier to conceal. You can hide a box in a room, but you still get to sort of open that box if it's labeled, you know, child pornography. And I use that reference because most cases arguing against ex-ante restrictions concern child pornography. You can name a file transcript fall 2010, but it actually contains um, pictures of drugs or you can name a folder grandparent letter, letters archived, but it actually contains a list of sellers and buyers of some drug. Now, overall, there's not much judicial um, agreement on anything besides the fact that you can't search a computer incident to arrest and you can't search a phone incident to arrest. We have controversy going all the way down to each district court and in certain cases state courts um, where one side says we need to be able to look through the whole computer due to files being easily concealable, concealable due to this alleged criminal being incredibly sneaky but on the other side saying well Maybe I do have something concealed on my computer, but you shouldn't get to go through every single little bite of the hard drive in order to find it. So that was a super uh, great way of outlining this very complicated debate. Just to make sure I understand it correctly, because again, this is, this is not something I'm super familiar with. Um, so ex-ante, provisions would basically require that um, law enforcement sort of list out specifically what it is they're looking for on a computer hard drive or a mobile device versus um, ex post, which would, I guess, uh, a court would determine what is allowable and what isn't allowable. Can you, can you clarify that a little bit? 
Yeah, that's a great point to, uh, to clarify. Thank you. So an ex-ante restriction can do a few things. So in a general Fourth Amendment warrant application, you already need to list out what you hope to obtain from that warrant. But it could be as general as uh, evidence of intent to distribute. There's frankly a lot of discretion left up to magistrate judges in deciding what is narrow or particular enough for a warrant to kind of be searching after. The controversial type of restriction here is how the search is actually conducted. So um, by, by analogy, a physical search with an ex-ante restriction on how the search is conducted could say, first, go check the living room, go through this cabinet and this cabinet and any cabinets that are labeled uh, so-and-so or appear similar. Then go to the basement and look through this bookcase for books that might say this or might say that. You can also look inside the books. In the analog, that seems very, very restrictive because the execution of the warrant needs to be dynamic enough to adapt to what the search actually is like. You can't know exactly what it's going to be like going into it. But with a digital search, um, you do have a pretty good idea already of what it might look like based on what file types you're looking for, what types of file names or dates of creation you're looking for that aren't available there. And then the ex post review is exactly what you said. The judge determines what was within the scope of the warrant and whatever was not in that scope that they seized anyway has to be thrown out. Okay, so what are some of the harms then associated with an ex post um, review? There are two big ones. The first one is the, the very high level principle that the government should not get to look at information it was not authorized to look at. And that's tricky because it's bound to happen and that's part of why we have the plain view doctrine. The Can you other, talk a little bit about that, the plain view doctrine? Sure. So under the Fourth Amendment, um, there is a, a judicial doctrine known as the plain view doctrine where if you have a warrant to search a space, you can also search anything in plain view in that space. So the probably most common example of the plain view doctrine is um, a cabinet of drawers. Say you have a search warrant for the room. You have to look for maybe a gun, um, maybe some files, paperwork, something like that. You get to search anything in the room that's in your plain view when you are just standing maybe in the middle of the room. So you can't go rifling through closed drawers. You can't open up shoe boxes hidden beneath beds unless the warrant also said you can do that. So really it's looking at a very surface level search of the room without being too invasive. Okay, that's super helpful. So then getting back to the harms, you said there were two that you had in mind. What was the second one? The second one's more nuanced um, and a little more complex conceptually. The idea is that apart from the government, from law enforcement really, um, an application being the one to go and look in your room maybe where they're not supposed to or look in your phone where they're not supposed to, it's of course perfect and wonderful that they don't get to use anything outside of the warrant in court. Um, however, they still saw that information and they retain concepts and parts of that information 
quite literally within their own brains. And then there aren't many sort of boundaries on how they use that. So what if you have a search of a phone and you're looking for evidence of intent to distribute, but um, going back to the very popular policy argument, you find child pornography. Well, maybe there's an exigent circumstances argument where you need to expand the search of the warrant because there might be a child in harm. But in the case that doesn't apply, maybe you try and use that as a law enforcement officer as the grounds for another warrant, which again, the discretion is left to the judge rather than by a very strict measure of what is like a reasonable suspicion to base this grounds on like, oh, this just seems like the type of crime that so often is paired with child pornography. Can I have another search of their phone for child pornography rather than um, actually happening upon that another way? And that's really, really controversial because while we really need to police certain crimes, especially ones that prey on vulnerable communities, we also need to maintain the integrity of privacy at a very unilateral doctrinal level um, for people that aren't engaged in these sort of heinous crimes. So it sounds like if, you know, the ex-anti crowd, um, that, that's more of, that's people who are more about protecting your privacy interests um, and preventing invasive searches. Whereas your, um, I guess, ex-post crowd, that sounds like that's going to be more, I guess, law enforcement. And their concerns would be um, that this sort of, that sort of framework ends up prohibiting um, some reasonable practices uh, or, or I guess pro- prohibiting their um, ability to, to, to do their job or to investigate. Uh, you, you, yeah. Yeah. You said you it perfectly. Yeah. So you kind of, you kind of mentioned one interesting aspect, how, in an ex-ante system, how does it work then if you've got a hard drive and everything is named, you know, 2012 transcript, but it's, it's secretly pornography? How does, how does one write, I guess, a particular, if, not knowing that, how do, you, how do you search for that? Or how do you write those provisions in before you start searching a computer? That's such a great point. There's... Um... There's a couple of different ways that you could do that, and none of them are perfect because technology is a little bit smarter than humans are most of the time, especially when that human isn't trained in technology and encryption and things like that. Um, So one way that law enforcement officers have tried to do that is with um, types of software that can seize file types Um, and filter out file types, for instance, um, all image files, so BMPs, JPGs, um, PNGs, things like that. Um, There are also maybe more complex, definitely more controversial in application software types that actually, in a way, search the photos in what um, would commonly be called like an artificial intelligence kind of method by saying, oh, this image, I'm not going to show you it, but we think it contains child pornography. And then it'll flag that image for then a human law enforcement agent to search personally. That's Interesting. tricky. It will, there will be a lot of false positives and false negatives, but that's probably the most common ex-ante restriction um, in place now. Apart from that, um, usually ex-ante restrictions that go too strictly, like only look in this type of folder or in this type of, 
I'm not sure, like file name or creation date, those might be a little trickier because those properties are really easy to alter and manipulate. Right. This is such a difficult problem. Just just thinking about it right now, you've you've got this issue of everything is stored on a computer. Um, so it's very different from that file cabinet analogy um, that you brought up. But at the same time, you know, you can manipulate different data um, in a way that obscures what it, what it, what it's actually hiding. Um, so I, I see kind of the controversy and the, t- and the tension here um, and also the importance of, you know, I, I see the point that pro ex ante, um, I guess, advocates make because it is super important that we're protecting privacy interests and, um, you know, protecting people from these invasive searches, especially as technology becomes more and more prominent these days. Um, One thing I was also thinking about, I guess when you're in a situation where, you know, if, if somebody comes and searches my home, I'm not sure how it works where I guess is, is there a limitation? Like what if you have roommates? Um, Is there a limitation on, you can only search my items versus, you know, what if my items are commingled with, with my roommates? How does that work offline in that situation? That is somewhere I'm not as familiar with. I do know that there are a lot of issues about commingling. Definitely they apply in digital spaces. My understanding in physical spaces, although don't quote me on this, um, is that common spaces are, if you will, up for grabs if the warrant is for a home. Um, are, of course, privacy rights in each person living in that house and in their spaces and rooms. But I know that when I've had roommates, I go in my friends' rooms, my roommates' rooms frequently. Um, and I think it would be more at the discretion of the magistrate judge, maybe, than um, a strict line, bright line rule. Right. I guess, I guess where I'm going with that is when you're talking about when you transition to the online world and you're talking about now technology, especially with the cloud, I, th- I feel like commingling is so much um, more possible where, you know, if, if you've got a family of people or even not just a family, but you've got large groups amount of people uploading to the same cloud server. Now you've got, it's almost impossible. Well, maybe not impossible, but in some ways it's very difficult to figure out, you know, if you're exposing somebody who's and their information, who's not even involved in um, this, this, matter that you're investigating in the first place? Yeah, that is definitely a really new question. Um, There hasn't been so many attempts through the Fourth Amendment search and seizure warrants uh, route to get to the cloud. Um, That's been more of a Stored Communications Act kind of effort by law enforcement, but we see more and more technology vendors say, oh, we actually do have the equipment to try and get into this person's cloud account. if you can get us into their computer and that on its own uh, is the subject of very many law review articles and very many academics stay awake at night thinking of it for sure. Right. I can imagine. So where do you see this issue, this ex post ex ante issue going next? You know, where are the courts leaning? Um, Is there a lot of advocacy on both sides? Is it more advocacy on one side than the other? There's definitely a lot more advocacy in the actual courtrooms on the ex post side, because in situations where we have these phone searches happening, um, the people favoring the ex ante um, would be on the defendant's side, assuming the defendant is the person owning the device. And 
that person, that party is definitely less equipped to make those policy arguments in most cases, especially because so many phone searches and so many computer searches are for things like child pornography, for drug possession, where there are whole separate issues of people who um, perpetrate those types of crimes and access to counsel, access to um, education. The ex-ante side is very heavily academics um, and very heavily um, politics um, and pundits that are in favor of it. Um, And I would place myself there for sure. It's just the sheer force of the law enforcement's interest in doing justice um, makes the ex post side uh, much, much larger um, and much more dense. That makes sense. I'm going to go ahead and pivot now um, to a different topic. When you and I were originally discussing it, you had said you were super interested in talking about how little is known about, you know, how law enforcement already is using technology. And I know there's a lot of discussion, um, you know, it's been going on since the early days of the crypto wars, uh, about law enforcement, the DOJ, requiring technology companies to have uh, backdoors so that they would be able to access a device in, I guess, emergency or other situations where they would need to investigate an individual who has encrypted information on on their device. Um, But from talking to you and from some of the stuff you had me read, it almost seems like law enforcement and the DOJ don't really need backdoor because this technology already exists. Yeah, so they, in many ways, I I think that are clear would benefit from backdoors um, because it's it's efficient, it's easy, there's a little bit less oversight, um, a little bit smaller government, which um, when you're talking about an encryption backdoor, the people using those backdoors definitely love all those things. Um, But there are technology vendors um, that make something known as mobile device forensic technologies or MDFTs um, that already are in contracts at all levels of government that do exactly this. They exploit encryption weaknesses in smartphones that entirely void the need for an encryption backdoor so long as the smartphone is one they figured out how to crack. Wow. Can you talk a little bit about the technologies that are already on the market? Yeah, so there's a full-blown competitive industry for MDFTs. Um, Law enforcement doesn't thumb through a smartphone as they might thumb through a computer um, sitting down with it. Instead, um, from levels like down to municipalities um, up to and including the FBI, um, they work with MDFTs to extract data and sometimes even fully image a phone's data um, as a means of searching it. Now, first, um, Motherboard has a very informative uh, article series called Phone Crackers that um, explores this saga, um, especially the most high-profile vendor, which is Graceshift and their A-list product, Grakey. They're also the most secretive. You actually can't learn anything from their website without logging in with law enforcement credentials. Um, But from FOIA requests and from leaks here and there, we know that Grakey lets law enforcement unlock and image iPhones. The software exploits iPhones full disk encryption as compared to Android's partitioned encryption um, to obtain readable and usable copies of the phone's data 
So like what the text says, the metadata, um, maybe where it was sent from and what time it was sent at, things like that. So this includes iPhones as new as the iPhone X and as new as iOS 11. Um, it's very up to date. So gray key is the very expensive sort of iterative case-by-case -case version of the encryption backdoor. We see the law enforcement agencies lobbying for encryption backdoors in Congress right now, but they also can already access these devices. This would just be a far easier way for them to do so. Wow, okay. So I could have my device, I guess, confiscated. And so what you're saying is there are technologies like GrayShift um, or I guess GrayKey, then they can they can take my device and then I guess plug it into whatever this gray key, I guess, software, or if it's um, a physical box, I would assume. Uh, and then over a course of what, a day or two, they could crack um, my device's password and, and have access to everything on my phone? Yeah, actually, if you have a phone password that's four digits, which um, some iPhones still have, they can do it in just a couple hours. Um, and not all like vendors are created equal. So others like Celebrate, which is maybe uh, GrayShift's top competitor can crack Androids. Um, Celebrate can actually crack signal messages um, on iPhones and Weibo on Android. And the actual amount that they can get to um, is a little bit spooky once you get there. And their information is a little more transparent than Gray gray key, gray shift, um, but only through their patch notes, which you can kind of piece together to figure out just how ominous the situation is. Okay, so what would somebody need to do? I mean, is there anything that a regular citizen can do with their devices to better protect themselves against this kind of technology, or is it kind of moot? A lot of it is moot outside of government action, such as um, legislative requirements, which is a whole other barrel of monkeys there. Um, but there is one big way where you can sort of take the weaknesses of these MDFTs and turn it against them. For example, MDFTs get into your phone by, in very non-technical terms, guessing your password and using a secret code word that changes depending on your phone settings. So those phone settings would be um, how often you need to use your password after you've let your phone sit without actively locking it, um, when you turned your phone off last, and what your phone requires of you when you restart your phone in order to authenticate. So the longer the code word is, um, the less information this MDFT can get from your phone. And the longest code word uh, you can get by turning your phone off. So it applies when your phone has not been unlocked since it was last fully turned on, since it was rebooted. So turning your phone off uh, just before an arrest means that any potential MDFT extraction will be pretty unfruitful. They'll be able to get far less information and far less metadata than they would even if your phone had been um, locked but still on and unlocked since you last used it. Um, and that's the tricky part is maybe when you're getting arrested, your top priority isn't to turn your phone off. And it's really unfortunate that so much of this, of how law enforcement uses these technologies is so so unknown because it is pretty nefarious how you can image a phone, use its handy dandy 
software UI to lay out all the stuff you image from it, sort it by file type, by the app you extracted it from, and then export that into a pretty PDF to give to the judge as the warrant's execution. Um, overall, there's not a lot you can do, which is really, really spooky and scary um, at an individual level um, and then at a systemic level. So it's just clicking for me now then why um, advocates like you are pushing for these, you know, ex ante restrictions, because I guess without it, they can do just that. They can use these, this available um, gray shift, gray key, whatever else on the market, and then just extract whatever they want from our devices. Exactly. Um, And maybe even more upsettingly, not that it needs it, but um, celebrate products, let law enforcement export this imaging and this extraction selectively into the reports. So law enforcement doesn't have to show the judge everything they obtain from the celebrate extraction. And very few places, if any, have, um, well, if any that I know of, I should say, uh, have hardline rules about when you need to destroy these copies of the phone's data. So it's really just sitting there, um, even if the judge doesn't personally know it. Wow. Wow. Okay. You had mentioned um, when we were talking that, you know, this is resulting in arrests being made over what law enforcement is seeing over Facebook and and Snapchat. Can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah. So these um, MDFTs can go into apps that have uh, computer counterponents, and I say that to mean that they're on websites. They're Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, and you can search um, a phone with an MDFT, get its Instagram data, um, maybe go into the data from the post of a private account. Otherwise, you'd have to get it this information from an SCA warrant, sorry, an SCA subpoena, um, but you have this here just through this phone search, um, and maybe this person on their private Instagram account um, has a picture of them holding a gun that they are legally licensed and registered to own. Um, But if this person has, uh, if this person's phone is being searched for intent to distribute or mere possession, um, and then even more likely if this person is non-white, then we have cases where the police will see this Instagram post and then, sorry, see this Instagram post of the defendant holding a gun and say, oh man, we've got a non-white person, they're holding a gun, we arrested them uh, for possession, notwithstanding the merits of that arrest or of that crime. Um, Let's go in on a gang charge as well. And we see a lot of overbooking um, just because we have these, these secret sort of safe places that we express ourselves in on social media, regardless of their moral value. And then the police make their own decisions based on that, of what should happen to you. Wow. Just, I don't know, in the whole criminal system. It's hard to articulate because the scale it happens at is so large, but still so complicated, and there's so much discretion. So watch what you post on social media, too, along with harden your devices, is what I'm hearing. Yeah, um, and my opinion, and that of many others, is that you shouldn't need to. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, point, sure, maybe don't talk about 
your illegal operations on social media, but you should be able to post a picture of yourself doing legal things at the very least on your social media account and not have it hurt you. Right. Well, Cameron, it sounds like this is something you are super passionate about and you're super um, educated on as well. I, I have to ask just as we're wrapping up, what's next for you? I, where do you, what do you see yourself doing next? Um, where is your career going, especially after, after law school? I'm not sure where after law school quite yet. I know that this summer I'll be working at the ACLU of Washington in their Technology Liberty Project. I'm really excited about that. They've done some work with surveillance and with Stingray, which is an MDFT that looks at cell site information rather than actual data and metadata like we've been talking about. Um, And I hope that that work um, gives me a better sense of how I want to use my legal knowledge in this very policy-heavy area. I've got quite um, quite a big interest, though, in litigation, um, so I'll have to find a position that lets me file a few motions, too. Um, we'll, we'll see. I'm just a one-L still. <laughs> which, is, which is awesome, by the way. You are. You're just a one-L, but you've got so much knowledge and so much experience already, so... I, I'm super impressed and you've taught me so much today and I'm sure you've taught our listeners so much today. So thank you for taking the time to explain this interesting and somewhat concerning topic to all of us. Yeah, thank you. Um, I love a chance to talk about this, of course. Um, and I really believe in advocacy through education. So I'm doing my part. Awesome. Well, I wish you luck in, you know, at the ACLU and whatever you're, you're up to next and keep fighting the good fight. Thank you. You too. One of the things that was and I did was we built blue boxes. Uh, these are obsolete now, but uh, they were devices that you could build. You know, when you make a long-distance phone call in the background, you Those are the telephone computers actually signaling each other, sending information to each other to set up your call. And the signaling they use is a lot like touch-tone phones, only it's different frequencies. Well, you can make a box that emits those frequencies, that can make those tones. And there's a way to, there used to be a way to fool the entire telephone system into thinking you were a telephone computer and to open up itself and let you call anywhere in the world for free. And matter of fact, you could go to, you could, you know, call from a a pay phone, uh, go to White Plains, New York, take a satellite to Europe, take a cable to Turkey, uh, come back to Los Angeles, uh, and you go around the world three or four times and call the pay phone next door and shout in the phone and be about 30 seconds and come out the other end of the, the other phone. So we actually, and these were illegal, I I have to add, Uh, but in spite of that, we were so fascinated by them that Waz and I actually figured out how to build one. We built the best one in the world. It was the first digital blue box in the world. And uh, we would uh, give them to our friends and use them ourselves. And, you know, you you rapidly run out of people you want to call. But it it was the magic of the fact that two teenagers could build this box for $100 worth of parts and control hundreds of billions of dollars of infrastructure in the entire telephone network in the whole world from Los Altos and Cupertino Telephone. That was magical. And experiences like that taught us 
the power of ideas, the power of understanding that if you can build this box, you can control hundreds of millions of dollars worth of telephone infrastructure around the world. That's a powerful thing. And and that, if we hadn't have made blue boxes, we, there would have been no Apple. Was I?